0: Gang, we're in Revelation chapter 5, if you'll turn with me on Revelation chapter 5. So we shared this a few weeks back, but I will be uh, doing a sabbatical, which is going to be a six week time of rest. And so that begins a week from today. So if you could be in prayer uh, for me for that, and I'll be praying for you guys. And then Pastor Sean is going to continue in the book of Revelation and Pastor Dan Hooker. So you guys are going to be blessed. I I did these guys a really good uh, favor as a servant leader. I got right to the difficult part of Revelation. I said, All right, guys, you're up. So, so, guys, read ahead for chapter six, and Pastor Sean will be uh, taking you through uh, chapter six and next week. So, Revelation chapter five. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for these two chapters in Revelation that show us very clearly your throne. And God, if we're honest, so many times we don't see clearly. We get discouraged with this life and trials and confused. We just ask through the power of your spirit and through your written word that you would break through all of that and allow us to see you, Jesus, in a greater light as the lion and the lamb. Pray for hearts tonight that need to be encouraged, hearts that feel unworthy, that feel condemned, that we could see that you only are worthy, Jesus. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Who is worthy? I think this is a question that we're always asking, whether it's you need to get your house painted and you're wondering who is qualified to be able to do that, or you need to get your car worked on, who's equipped for that task, or maybe you need help with your taxes and who's able to, to do that. But I think even more so, personally, uh, we're asking the question, who's worthy in my life? What's going to equip me or qualify me to be the dad that I would desire to be? Or the spouse that God is calling me to be? Or to navigate singleness in a way that would glorify the Lord? And in our text, this question is asked, who is worthy to open up the scroll? And it's none other than Jesus Christ. And he's the one that we're looking to. It's it's his worthiness. It's his sacrifice that unlocks things in our lives as well. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. So John in his vision, he sees one upon the throne and in his right hand is a scroll And what's unique about this scroll is it's written on on the front and the back. It's just just filled up with writing. In ancient scrolls, this was not common. You would only write on one side of the scroll. So this scroll has a lot to say and then it's sealed with seven seals. And the whole chapter and chapter six revolves around this scroll and the seven seals. There's a lot of questions of what is the scroll? What does the scroll represent? And chapter five and chapter six doesn't tell us. God doesn't tell us what's written on the scroll, what the scroll uh, represents. It points more to the one who is worthy to open up these seven seals and open up uh, the scroll. But it is very clear that the seals are God's judgment. As you get into chapter six, you see the wrath of God begin, and God is pouring out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. The message of this is that Jesus is worthy to open up the judgment of God. That Jesus is worthy to be able to pour out the the judgment of God. And when we think about uh, God's judgment, it's an important part of his character. If things were to continue in this world the way that they are, with no correction from God, no intervention of God, God bringing his, his wrath, we would go, God, are you just? God, are you, are you trustworthy? Wickedness just continues to ramp up to a point where ultimately God in his justice has to bring judgment. So the question is, as we get into the wrath of God, is, is the church going to be in this tribulation period? As we'll look at chapter 6, is the church present when these seals begin to be opened and the wrath of the, the Lamb begins? And personally, I feel that the church is going to be raptured prior to this point. We've seen the church mentioned over and over again in the book of Revelations, but. Once the wrath of God begins, you never see the word church used, used again. Jesus, when he died upon the cross, he took the wrath of the Father for us. He was the propitiation for our sins. He appeased the wrath of God. And it's very clear, the tribulation is God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. It's not pointed towards the church. It's not pointed towards the people of God. So I believe that we'll already be up in heaven. We'll, we'll be raptured. Maybe you're not familiar with with the rapture, and, and what does that even mean? In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we see this term to be caught up, where Jesus is going to appear in the clouds and blow the trumpet, and we're going to be caught up and forever be with the Lord. And that word caught up is where we get the English word rapture. Now, do I know that I'm right on this? No, I don't, because God doesn't tell us exactly when this is, this is going to happen take place. So it's a position that we have to hold lightly. We have, it's a position that we have to hold in, in humility. Jesus did tell us uh, to be watching for his return, right? He very clearly said, I want you to be aware that I could come at any moment. And in my mind, the pre-tribulation rapture view is the only one that allows for Christ to possibly return for his church this evening. Because if it's mid-trib, we know it can't be today because the tribulation hasn't started. A young child could read the book of Revelations and go, things are bad, but we're clearly not in the tribulation yet. So also if you believe in a a post-tribulation rapture view that that God is going to come after the tribulation is done, Christ can't return for his church today. We're looking for antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. But the focus of this is not pre trib, mid trib, or post trib. It's Jesus. And that's sometimes what we miss in this discussion, don't we? Is there's one that's worthy to open up these seals, and it's Christ. In verse 2, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a, a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? He must be a really strong angel because all angels are strong, right? But this guy is extra built. I saw a strong angel, meaning that there were some angels that aren't quite as strong as this guy. And he's proclaiming with, with a loud voice. And the loud voice is used over and over in the book of Revelation, and it, it's emphasis. He he asks this question in a manner where he doesn't want anyone to miss it. Who's worthy to open this scroll and loose the seals? Who who is really worthy to Injustice, be able to give judgment to a Christ-rejecting world? And that's the question oftentimes that we're asking in our own lives personally. We're, we're not asking about who's worthy to pour out judgment, but, but who's really able and equipped to be able to get me through this life? Who's really able and equipped to provide salvation and provide eternal life? Who, who's worthy to be able to provide hope? And we probably wouldn't uh, say it this way or articulate this, but oftentimes we're looking to ourselves. We're looking to our own worthiness instead of the the worthiness of Christ. In verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. That's quite a statement. Let's look at it. First, no one in heaven. So that would be believers that are in heaven. Elijah. Elisha, Peter, Paul, no one in heaven, no one on earth at this particular time, no one under the earth was able to open the scroll. No one in all of humanity, in past, present, or future, and no one was even able uh, to look at it. There was no answer to the strong angels challenge because the creation is utterly incapable of deciding or affecting its own destiny. Someone above the order of created beings must determine the counsel of history. Only God can unfold this plan. Those are the words of David Guzik in his commentary on Revelation. No human could bring about the the justice of God or the the judgment of God. There was no one else that was up to this task, that was equipped, that was qualified. In verse 4, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Why would this cause John to grieve to such a great degree? Was it just the curiosity of knowing what these seals were? Knowing what the judgment of God was like? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, the word weep in, in the Greek, so I wept, involves great action, It's not just a a passing tear, but John was really moved. And I think what John is realizing here is if if God doesn't set things right, if someone doesn't set things right, then the world goes on in a chaotic, wicked, perverted state. And he's longing for the justice of God. And in his heart and his mind, he's like, this is catastrophic, if the world just continues as it is and these seals don't come upon. There's a point in human history where we get so sinful where justice from God is actually his mercy. And I think in some ways we start to feel this, don't we? You know, when you see kids getting murdered and kids getting abused and things spiraling out of control, we go, Lord, come quickly. God set set things right. I'm so thankful that You've died for my sins, and I want to tell as many as possible about, about Christ, but, but God, you need to judge. God, you need to, to set this right. There's that inside of us from, from the Spirit of God that says, Lord, would you come? Lord, would, would you set things right? Would you rule and reign? It is the hope of all believers to look forward to when Christ is ruling and reigning literally on this earth. Isn't that incredible? For him to set things right. There's going to be no political leader that is ultimately going to be able to set things right. No educational system. No economic system. Ultimately, what we're longing for, what we're weeping for, is for Jesus to come and for Jesus to open these seals and for him to rule and reign and set things right. And if these seals are never opened, if God's judgment is never given, then that's a big deal. And John John grasped that. In verse 5, I love this. This, to me, is my favorite part of this chapter. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. 24 elders, around the throne of God, we know that from from chapter four. And he sees John weeping, and he speaks to John, and he says, hey, behold Jesus. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is worthy to be able to open up this scroll. The elder, check this out, he had knowledge of Jesus and was willing to share it. He had knowledge of Jesus and he was willing to share it. Through spending time in worship, spending time around God's throne, he knew that Jesus was able to open up the seals, that Jesus was able to bring judgment and he's able to share that with with John. And that's our hope for all of us, is first that we would know Christ, that we would have deep and personal, intimate knowledge of Christ, just like this elder. And then we would be able to share that knowledge with others. The elder can't solve the problem for John. He's not the solution. He can't open up the seals. He can't unlock the the scroll. But he knows the answer, and that's Jesus Christ. And a lot of times we get that confused. When someone's weeping, when their life is coming out of control, we think, I've got to come in here and I've got to be able to fix this. I've got to provide the answer. But that's not it at all. We need to point them to the line of the tribe of Judah. We need to point them to the root of David. We're going to look more at the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, but I want to see this principle of pointing people to Jesus in the life of Philip. So turn with me to John chapter one in verse 43, the gospel of John. Not a well-known disciple, but a very effective disciple, Philip. This is John one, verse 43. He gets a knowledge of Jesus and he shares it. the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So Jesus just busts on the scene of Philip's life. And he's like, follow me. And Philip's like, okay, let's do this. And he chooses to follow Jesus. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's saying we found the Messiah. We've found the one that was prophesied in Moses' writings. He's Jesus of Nazareth. So he has this knowledge of Christ. It's very fresh. It's not very deep, but it's moved him, and he goes and he finds Nathanael. He's intentional about it. Jesus found him. Jesus pursued him. So now he's going to pursue someone else. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So Nazareth wasn't known to be a nice place. You can think of some not very nice places in our state. He said it, I didn't say it, right? And you're like, can anything good come from, fill in the blank, right? That, that's Nazareth, Nazareth is the wrong side of the tracks, if you, if you would. And that was Nathanael's disagreement. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Quite a compliment to Nathanael. Walks in integrity. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Dude, you were hanging out underneath the fig tree before Philip came and found you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Didn't take a lot to reach Nathanael, right? Like, I saw you hanging out under the fig tree. He's like, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. (laughs) Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see the heaven open The angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now back to Revelation with the elder. No detail is wasted in Scripture. Would we agree? It's all there for a reason. And God records this elder for us as an example. He had the knowledge of Christ and he shared it. He had the knowledge of Christ and and he shared it. What knowledge do you have about Christ? Share it. How much knowledge did Philip have about Christ? Not a whole lot. But what he did have... He shared it. And it's so exciting to know it, and it's even more exciting to be able to share it. What does he share about Jesus? That he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We've got to pause here for just a minute because this is so rich from the Old Testament. As we know that Israel, who was Jacob, and God changed his name to Israel, he's got 12 sons. And the rock star of his sons, we talked about this some at the men's retreat, was Joseph. I mean, man, a character. We don't see any rebellion in his life or lapse of integrity or or compromise. And you would think that the Messiah would be the lion of the tribe of Joseph. Come on, right? He's one of the heroes of the Old Testament. But one of his brothers was Judah. And Judah, not so much. We look at his storyline, and there was sexual sin in his life and God writes about Judah in Genesis 49 verse 9 and 10 he says Judah is a lion's whelp from prey my son thou art gone he stooped down he crouched as a lion as an old lion who will arouse him describing the character of Judah the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. God prophesied right there that through the tribe of Judah, Jesus would come. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Why did God choose Judah? Because Jesus comes to broken people. And God wanted to get that message out from the very beginning with the lineage of Christ. When we see Jesus described as a lion, it speaks of his deity. It speaks of his power. It speaks that he is unlimited. But then the root of David is speaking of his humanity. That Jesus would also come from the genealogy of David. Isaiah eleven verse ten says, "In that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for a sign of the people. It shall, it shall, to it shall the Gentiles seek and." His rest shall be glorious. God spoke to David when David wanted to build God a temple. And God says, no, your hands are of war. There's too much blood. But God says, David, I'll build you a house. And your descendants are gonna rule forever. This was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, you get some wicked kings in Judah, and God says, well, I didn't destroy Judah because of my promise to David that Jesus would come be the root of David. So we see this beautiful picture of Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also him being the root of David. And it goes on to express that Jesus is the lamb. So we see the lion and the lamb. In verse 6 And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seen seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth. What is the center stage of the throne room of God? It's Jesus, the Lamb of God who is slain for our sins. The 24 elders are focused on Jesus. These four living creatures that we go, what? I want to see what those living creatures are all about. They're focused on, on Jesus. And here he stands as a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus continues to bear the wounds of the cross. When Thomas touched the resurrected Savior, he touched the wounds of Christ. This is going to be completely overwhelming to see Jesus as the lamb that was slain. I think at the moment when we see Christ, we're going to understand in a greater way what it meant for him to be crucified for our sins. Guys, this is the unfolding message of the Bible that God would provide a sacrifice for our sin. In the Old Testament, we see God having Abraham sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. But then God provided a ram in the thicket, didn't it? God providing a sacrifice so that Isaac wouldn't have to to give his life. The Passover, when death would come to the household, God said, kill a lamb. And then the lamb's blood be placed upon the door of the home, and death passed over. So you have a lamb for a man with Isaac, and then you have a lamb for a whole entire family on Passover, but then you have Yom Kippur, when the sacrifice would take place for the nation of Israel, and God would cover their sins, a lamb for a nation. So God, throughout his word in the Old Testament, is pointing to a physical lamb that would inevitably point to Jesus. And then we find John the Baptist when he sees Jesus Christ and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Every lamb that was sacrificed in the Old Testament points to Jesus who is a better sacrifice, who takes away our sins, not only just just covers our sin. So in Christ, we have this wonderful balance of him being the lion and the lamb, being all-powerful but yet completely humble to the point where he would die upon the cross for our sins. If Jesus were a humble servant, but he he wasn't a powerful God, something would be missing. But as a powerful God, if he wasn't a humble servant who died for our sins, something would be missing. There's times in my life where I need Jesus to be the lion. I need him to roar. I need him to roar in my defense. I need him to save me from myself, to get me out of my own head. I need him to be the lion. But then there's so many times in my life where I need him to be the lamb. I need him to come to me gently. I need a savior that would humbly serve me and die upon the cross for my sins. And that's your Jesus. That's the one who's worthy to open up the seal. It's not about the seal. It's not about the scroll. It's about the one who's worthy to be able to open it. And maybe there's things in our lives that need to be unlocked. There's things in other people's lives that are gonna need to be unlocked it's gonna be Jesus who unlocks it, amen? Amen. If he can unlock judgment and bring about judgment and complete justice, then he can unlock things in in our lives as well. Jesus is described as having seven horns and seven eyes. Have you ever heard Jesus described that way? And the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. So what is this talking about? The seven horns speak of power, that Jesus is all-powerful. The seven eyes speak of the full knowledge of Christ, that he sees all and knows all. The seven spirits speak of the fullness of the work of the Spirit. And that has been sent out in the earth. The the, the work of the Spirit has fully been sent out. In verse 7, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus takes the scroll from the Father. And these seals are going to begin to, to be opened. This shows that Christ is indeed worthy, that the Father would entrust this to him. In verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the 24 elders, the four living creatures, they bow down in worship. And they each have a harp, playing the harp. And then they have golden bowls full of incense. And this incense represents the prayers of the saints. This is encouraging, church. You ever feel like your prayers don't go anywhere? They're going before the throne room of God. And that's what's represented here. In Psalms 141, verse 2, it says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So the evening sacrifice going up before the Lord, the incense going up before the Lord, you're going to bed tonight and you're praying, and your prayers are going before the throne room of God. Heaven is only going to be able to tell how God intervened through prayer. We don't fully understand it on this side of heaven. God's sovereign, He does what He wants, but yet He responds to the prayers of His people. And we're commanded to pray. So your prayers are being heard and they're going before the throne room of God. In Revelation 8, turn over there with me quickly and let's look at the first three verses of Revelation 8. When he opened the seventh seal, so this is at the end of the seven seals, When he opened up the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So once again, we see our prayers being represented like incense. And it's so meaningful to the Lord that God says, let's pause for a half hour. You know, what if we just had 30 seconds of silence? Awkward, we can't even make it, right? It's too long to have 30 seconds of of silence. And in heaven, God says, okay, it's gonna be silent for 30 minutes for a half hour. Now remember the chorus of praise around the throne room of God and all of a sudden it's just quiet and the prayers are, are being altered. The idea of God's judgment is that we've been praying for God to intervene. We've been praying for God to judge. We've been saying, Lord, you're, you're the judge. You, you avenge. And God now in his right time is justly holding people accountable. Let's go back to Revelation and look at verse 9 of chapter 5. And they sang a new song, sang, so they're going to sing a new song to the Lord. A new song because God is doing a new work. A new song speaks of freshness in our relationship with the Lord. Certain worship songs, if they tend to be a favorite of ours, depict a certain time in our relationship with the Lord. Maybe you can remember a a song in that season where you first got saved. Or maybe there was an intense trial in your life, and, and this was a song that you, you tended to, to sing a lot to, to the Lord. There's definitely those songs in my life. you know One of my favorite uh, worship songs is when Elie uh, was born in 2010. there was a, an album that came out that I really liked and listened to a lot. And there's one song on that album that I would always play, and as she was a baby, I would hold her, and we'd dance in the family room, the living room, whatever, and we'd sing this to, to, together, and to this day, she's eight, and she's like, Dad, is that my song? She'll, she'll hear it, go, that, that's my song, and it was a real time of rejoicing in our in our family, and the, and the song's a real uh, happy type of, of worship song, but there's there's other times in our family where there's been grieving and loss, and there's, there's worship songs that represent that as well. And, and God wants to give us a new song, because he's continuing to do a new work in our lives. And though we're thankful for those songs in the past, God wants to continue to add to the playlist. Amen? You know, so as there's a worship song, maybe we sing here, or you hear on the radio, or wherever it comes into your life, is, is go ahead and download it. You know, go ahead and purchase it go and, and, and sing it to the Lord and allow it to become a, a part of the fiber of, of who you are. In Psalms 40, verse 3, he says, He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. God has put a new song in my mouth. Side note, church, be willing to learn a new song. Some, sometimes when our worship leaders present a new song to us, you might go, Oh, I just love all those other songs. I don't really want to learn a new song. I don't know this song. Well, maybe in six months from now, it'll be your favorite, right? But right now, it's a little bit of a stretch. But they're following God in giving us new songs. God says, sing a new song to me because I'm doing a a fresh work in your life. So here's the new song. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Saying, Jesus, you're worthy, you're equipped, you're perfect to be able to open the seals. And the seals are God's judgment. The seals are, are God's wrath. He's pouring out his judgment. And Jesus is worthy. It's his place to be able to do this, to pour out judgment, because he was slain. Because he was willing to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. So you have the Savior who is also the judge. He's perfectly equipped in justice to be able to pour out judgment. If you've ever had to been in the position of pouring out consequences, it's difficult. I feel for our judges that have got to decide what punishment fits fits the crime. And it's hard to do that well. It's hard to do that perfectly. It's difficult enough with your own kids to cipher through all the information and give just, just consequences. But Jesus is equipped to do this because he was slain. And he's redeemed us by his blood. See, God doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want any to be the object of his wrath. That's why he sent his son to die him upon the cross. But you will deal, deal with Jesus you're either going to come to a place of receiving his grace and allowing him to be your savior, or he'll be, be your judge. And then out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, God's redeemed people out of every ethnic group. How amazing is it going to be at heaven to hear the nations worship God and all of the different God-given languages and dialects? It's always been inside of the heart of God to reach the nations, Jesus told us to go and make disciples of the the nations. All the way back with Abraham in Genesis 12, God speaks this amazing promise to him that he's gonna bless Abraham. But the reason that he's blessing Abraham is to bless the nations. I'll read it to you. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you, and in you the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says to Abraham, in you all of the nations are gonna be blessed. How is that fulfilled? Jesus coming through Abraham's descendants, and Jesus came for the nations of the world. Man, I hope that our heart continues to grow for all of the nations. We wanna continue to see our own people reached. There's so many people lost right here in the United States of America and pray and press into that, but also to dream that God would continue to reach the nations of the world, amen? I mean, it's exciting to know that God's using our church in our community, but also God's using our church throughout the nations, and one day, we're gonna be gathered together around the throne room of God, hearing the nations around the throne. Church, this is really all that matters right here, is are you gonna be around the throne room of God do you know Christ as your savior? Is he your Lord? Do you have eternal life? Okay, you're gonna be around the throne room of God for eternity. All right, who in our lives doesn't know Christ? Who in our lives hasn't received the gospel and are they gonna be there? And if the answer is, I don't know, or the answer is, I don't think so, they've, they've rejected Christ, then that's what we need to press into. Saying, God, we wanna be used by you to share the gospel, to see people reach, to see the throne room of God surrounded with those that trust Jesus as their savior. Verse 10, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Part of God's redemption in our lives is elevating us to this position where we get to be kings and priests. If you know the Old Testament, the kings were never priests, and the priests were never kings when God set up the nation of Israel. He always kept them separated. It was too much power to be the king and to be the priest, to be the spiritual leader. But here, in Christ, God has made us kings, and he's made us priests. It's like, man, God forgiving us if that wasn't enough. If God making us his children, if if that wasn't enough. He says, you get to be a king. You get to be a priest. You get to rule and reign with me, and the promise is, we shall reign on the earth. We're gonna rule and reign with Christ during that thousand-year period. I hope you understand that heaven and eternity with Christ is not going to be boring. You're going to get to be a king. You're going to get to be a priest. The only way to be a king and the priest in the Old Testament was to be born into it. Was your dad king? Okay, you get to be king. Or take it by brute force. To be a priest, you had to be born into it. To be a Levite. But God has granted this to us through our position in Christ. Verse 11, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The expression here is it's countless. It's beyond number. The angelic beings around the throne room of God joining the elders in worship. And now the angels enter into course, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pause on this for just a moment. The worthiness of Christ, because he is equipped, because he's perfect, the perfect sacrifice, he is worthy of all power. To to surrender all of our power to God. He's worthy of all riches. It's appropriate to respond to the Lord in giving financially. He's worthy of wisdom. He's worthy of strength to give him all of our strength, to give him all of our honor, to give him glory and to give blessing. Jesus is worthy of all things. As we see the worthiness of Christ, our response then is worship. There's another chorus that begins, and in every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such that are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever Philippians 2 tells us that part of the exaltation of Christ is everyone is going to bow to Christ the question is is it too late or not We also know from Romans that creation groans for for redemption Jesus said, if you don't worship me, the rocks are gonna cry out. And this is the moment where everything comes in alignment and everything is properly worshiping Christ. And this is our purpose, to worship Christ, to surrender to him. In verse 14, then the four living creatures said, amen. They said, so be it, this is true. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So the application for us tonight is, is let us rejoice in the worthiness of Christ. Let us rejoice in the worthiness of Christ. And I know that there's a lot of confusion and fear about the tribulation and God pouring out his judgment and his justice. But it should be nothing that we fear because Christ is able to do it and he'll do it perfectly at the perfect time in absolute justice. And at that moment, we're going to say, amen. This is right. This is good. This is the lion. He came as the lamb, and now he's coming at the lot as, as the lion. Probably, we're already we going to be joined up with the Lord in heaven, but however that all works out with, with the rapture, It's not something that has fear and trepidation inside of our hearts because Jesus is worthy and he's able to open these seals and he's able to do it perfectly. Let's rejoice in his worthiness, but let's also make the perfect or the application in our hearts and lives. Is maybe you're asking that question, who's worthy? Am I worthy? Am I equipped? And I am I able? And to look to the Lamb who's around the throne. Look to the lion look to the lamb, look to Jesus, and rest upon his worthiness. I think as husbands, what if we lived out an expression of being a husband based on his worthiness? I'm trusting in him. Wives, living out an expression of worship based upon his worthiness. What if we attempted to parent in this trust of Christ is worthy? He is able. He's the perfect sacrifice. If we look to navigate singleness, to say, you know, I'm not trusting in my own ability, I'm trusting in his worthiness. And then we get to take the position of the elder and say, you know what, check out the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Check out the Lamb. He's He's the one that you need to draw near to. He's the one that you need to ask wisdom of. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you you are the Lion. That you're the rock. That you're the one who defends us. You're the one who has power to bring the just judgment at the perfect time. And we also thank you, Jesus, that you're the lamb who's gracious and merciful, who is willing to take our place upon the cross. And Jesus, you win our hearts afresh tonight. We surrender afresh to you and we join in this chorus that you're worthy. Would you please take us into deeper worship? In Jesus' name, amen.